Good morning. Um, our text this morning is Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the peace of God will be with you. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, this weekend, Black Friday weekend, uh, does a number of things for us, but one of the things that it did for me is it affirmed, reaffirmed, if you will, two things. Number one, it reaffirmed for me the total depravity of man, um, and the second thing that it reaffirmed for me is the goodness and the sovereignty of God. So, let me explain that, and then we'll pray, and then I'll preach. Um, this is just fun stuff. So the first one is, it applies actually. Um, the first one is the total depravity of man. So um, surprising, surprisingly, I found out that on, on Friday night that I was going to get to go out uh, Thursday night. I, got, I found out that I was going to get to go out for Black Friday. And so um, <laughs> about 10 p.m. I found that out. And so uh, I go out to uh, Kohl's, and this is where I, I discovered, rediscovered, had affirmed to me, the amazing total depravity of man. So I'm standing there freezing, and I mean, it's just, you know, an enormous line, 700 people probably. And so I, I was in the middle somewhere. It wasn't that many. And so there I was, <coughs> and it was, here's where the, the, the total depravity part came. So I'm standing there. We're waiting for midnight so the doors to open, and people are standing in the parking lot um, seeing us, that, that we've been here a while. And as soon as the doors open, we start going in, and these people just start crossing the road and just going in too. And that's what we're all thinking. And so I'm, we're all thinking, you know, in the line, you sinners, <laughs> we've been here waiting, freezing. What are you doing? Stop, stop. And so, um, and here's the second part of the total depravity. The people in the line start yelling at them is to the top of their lungs. Hey, what do you think we're doing here in the line? Get in the back. I mean, I almost lost my voice yelling at him. I was trying to help him see. Like, <laughs> so anyway, um, I didn't actually yell at him at all. I was, I'm too nervous for that kind of stuff. But uh, I, when we got up there, we, we got in. And when we get in, and if you've ever been, I didn't go to Walmart where it's just insane. You know, they scratch your eyes out for bed sheets or something. But I, I was uh, going in there, and I'm just looking around, and it's just mayhem. I mean, people are going crazy, grabbing stuff, and it's just so funny. You know, the day before, we're, we're thanking God for all the things we have. And then the day after, we're just killing each other for the things that we don't think we have, like we just, this, the previous day. So anyway, all that happened, and I, you know, got the stuff I needed to get. God was nice for giving me that kind of stuff. And so it's about 1.30 or so, I'm driving home, and going down Selenese, and this is where the, the goodness of the sovereignty of God comes in. I'm driving down Selenese, and I look over, and I'm like, what is going on? God shined down, and I see hot now right there. 
And I'm thinking, this is good, the goodness of God's sovereignty. And so he's shining on with the hot now sign. So I pull in, and amazingly, I mean, it's backed up. The drive through at Krispy Kreme is backed up, but I still waited anyway and ate three on the way home while I was driving. Yes, I did, I know. But I figured I earned it. I mean, I earned it. I sat out there in the freezing cold, and it was, it was my gift to myself. So, um, <laughs> so anyway... Uh, what happens is, because if you're a believer, you believe in these two things in Christ. If you're in Christ, you believe in these two particular things, more than likely. The, the, the total depravity, or at least, if you will, the sinfulness of man, but also the goodness and the sovereignty of God. We believe as Christians that men are sinners, and therefore they need Christ, but we also believe in the goodness of God, and we want them to know the goodness of God. And what happens is, um, as believers, that should inflame us or... Um, send us out to want to tell people about Jesus. Now here's where it, what happens. Because we live in a rugged American individualistic society, we think, okay, the way I'm going to fulfill Matthew 28, the Great Commission, by helping people see that they're sinners and affirming for them the goodness of God in Christ, in the cross, is I'm going to go out and do it by myself. I'm going to do, tell everybody I can. But the problem, I think, is textually and in the, in the scriptures, over and over, Matthew 28, the fulfillment of the Great Commission is clear that the Lord wants us, it's best done in the context of community. Communities living on mission together. People gather together, not an American, rugged, individualistic, trying to just go by yourself like Rambo saving everybody, but instead, he wants us to get together, do life together, and make disciples together, which means believers becoming stronger disciples, making disciples of believers, helping them grow in Christ, doing life together, and believers going out and making disciples of unbelievers together. And so here we're going to be looking at some very, very familiar verses. If you've spent any time in Philippians whatsoever, you're going to see some very familiar verses like rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Or um, another verse that's very familiar is um, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Or Philippians 8, uh, 4.8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, you know, on and on, think about these things. And more than likely, if you're like me, we've read these verses in an individualistic mindset. And what I want to frame here for us is, maybe this will be a fresh um, visit for these verses I think these verses are to be read in the context of thinking in community. These verses are actually supposed to be lived out and understood in the context of community. A group of people doing these things together. A group of people rejoicing in the Lord always. And again, I say, not, well, I need to rejoice, so it's me by myself, and I'm going to do it as I'm driving down the road, and I'm not yelling at everybody for cutting me off. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord by myself. Or whenever I'm doing my quiet time, and it's just me and the Lord for my five, ten, whatever you're, you know, however spiritual you are, it's more minutes. And so you're like, I'm going to really rejoice in the Lord here in this particular time individualistically. I don't think that that's the context here. I think that the way we're supposed to understand these things in Philippians 4, that God wants us to do these things in community. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, hopefully try to show those things to us in the scriptures and maybe give you a new fresh way to see these verses and then give us some challenges on how you can actually live these things out in a group of people. Now, I'm going to keep saying community, community, and I want you to mean that I don't mean this necessarily in its noun sense, but more in its verbal sense, uh, meaning uh, I know we live in a community. We live in a city, and we're in Rock Hill. I, I mean it more in I want you to do community together. I want you to actually be 
um, getting together with people, group of 12 to 15 people, whether it's your community group, and you're going to hear me um, continually exhort you towards a community group if you're not in one um, during this sermon. That's just kind of the, the, the nature of this. But if you're not in a community group, or I mean, if you are in a community group, to really think about how we're doing life together, how we're making disciples together, how we're fulfilling these, these four elements of a true community that, that we're going to see in the text together, and ask ourselves the questions. Where are we lacking? Where are we not? Those kinds of things. So we're going to be looking at these particular verses, um, and then we're going to see uh, some, some things that Paul wants to say to us about community. So I'm going to pray, and then we're, we're going to jump in. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you for these verses. Thank you for your word. And I pray that, God, as we see these verses and as we hear maybe these familiar verses, but in a new, fresh way, that they're not necessarily um, just verses we read by ourselves and slap on a coffee cup and try to live out by ourselves, but really, these verses are to be lived out in the context of a community with 12 people, obediently sharing life with one another, obediently doing things together, obediently making disciples together, obediently praying together, so that when we hear these things, we wouldn't just say, okay, that's good stuff. I want to I try to work on that one day. Or I agree with those things, but uh, I don't really have time for that. I pray, God, that we would strive this morning by the power of your Spirit to not just be hearers of the Word, but doers. We will go home this week and think about the things that we've he- heard from these Scriptures and really strive to start making steps in our lives with our family, with our roommates, to do these things, to be a community of believers, pockets of communities all across the city of Rock Hill, all across the county of York that are actually making disciples and living in community together for the sake of the gospel. Would you do that, Lord? Would you grant those things to us this morning? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4 for two weeks. And so as you know, last week, Jack preached the end of chapter 3, and he, he held out for us the idea of sanctification, the idea of growing in godliness, the idea of becoming more Christ-like. And he affirmed to us that it's definitely work that we need to do, but it's also the work of God. And as we're doing it, as we're pursuing sanctification, we don't want to fall off the two sides of either legalism or license, but want to um, really pursue living for Christ-like holiness on our, um, with everything we have, if you will. And so verse 1 is a, an interesting little verse because commentators, as they see verse 1, they don't know where to put it. If, if you have you know, an organized mind, we like sections. And so they don't know how to section verse 1. That, you know, it wasn't written with chapters and verses before. It was just a, a letter. And so as these guys have come in behind, they say, okay, how can we section this off? Where does verse 1 go? Does it go with the previous section or does it go with, with the next section? We want to know. And commentators are really kind of all over. It goes with the previous, it goes with the next. Or it's just really um, kind of the end of and the beginning of. And I think that's really what it is. Verse 1 here for us is actually the end of last week's ideas and the beginning of this week. It's a perfect transition verse. You can see it there in um, we're in verse 1 where it says, therefore. So therefore, based on the pursuit of sanctification, Paul's going to use this verse and really kind of project out for us over the rest of chapter 4. And I know he didn't think chapter 4. Um, what, is my, what are my concluding thoughts? What are the last things I want to leave to the church at Philippi um, as we're rounding out this letter? What are some of the last things I want them to see? And so there's a big shadow cast over for us in our conclusion right there in verse 1 that we're to think of. And this week as we're talking about community, even in next week as we talk about generosity, uh, one big idea, and that's in verse 1 where it says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, 
And you can just see again Paul's deep affection for the Philippians. My joy and my crown. He actually calls them their crown. He's so happy about this church in Philippi that he's, they're, they're that important to him that they mean that much in his ministry. And this is what he says. Stand firm thus in the Lord. Stand firm. So that, that stand firm has given us an idea of what he wants to, con- what are my concluding thoughts, which is never give up in the Christian walk, Philippians. Never give up. Stand firm. Run the good race. Finish it. I want you to stand firm and never give up in this Christian walk. Now, in that idea, he's in verse 1, um, for our particular time today, he's going to talk about how to live this out in community. So what I want to do here is, um, verse 1 is kind of a, a big general exhortation. I want you to stand firm. This is what it means. Live your life in such a way to where you never give up in the Christian walk. Now, as we're thinking about that, there's several ways I can apply that. There's several things we can do. But Paul for us in that verse 1 is going to narrow it down to a specific application for us in verse 2 and 3. So there's all kinds of ways we can apply verse 1. But as that general exhortation has been given to us in verse 1, Paul wants to talk about a specific way that it can be applied. And that's where we see that he wants to talk about living in life with community. And that's where I think this particular section we're looking at through verse 9 is going to help us see that Paul has given us four elements of true community. And here's the deal. Um, Remember, as we're going into a talk on community, it's important that you really start asking yourself the questions as you're going along. What community am I in? Who are the group of 5, 10, 12 Christians that I have willingly put myself in with so that we are making disciples together here at remember we have community groups we have something that you can do that or if you don't live in this city um, god has not designed church for you to be something that you go to once a week on sundays stand around in a room for about an hour or sit and then go out for the rest of the week and never see that group of people anymore and think that you're doing community think that you're part of a body you're not, that's fragmented life, and that's not the way the body's supposed to be. God has designed it that you would be, for us, it's just played out at Remedy in community groups. Some churches have other things, and those things work. It's just the way we do it. It's not the right way, it's just a way. However, God has designed that you should be in a community, actively involved in the lives of 10 to 12 people, where you are making disciples together um, of each other in the nations and in the, in the city, where you're talking to each other about Christ, you're talking to each other about what's going on in your life, you're praying for one another, etc. Um, and so we're seeing here as we're talking about four elements of true community. I just want to put it out there. If you're not in community, I'm going to repeatedly say that th- the design of God is that you would be. So let's look at the first one. Right here, he gives us that general exhortation, then he applies it for us here in verse 2. And I'm just going to mispronounce these words many times, these names many times, just so, it, you know, it'll keep us interesting. You can maybe keep a tick on how many times I say it wrong. I entreat um, Eudea and Syntyche. Now, these two are, are probably ladies, and we don't know. I'm not saying that women are particularly more quarrelsome than men. I don't think that at all. Um, but he's actually entreating them, Eudoia and, and Sintichi, the, to make sure that they agree in the Lord. Now, I want to make sure we understand there's a disagreement going on here. This disagreement is not theological. This is personality-based. There's something going on where they have rubbed each other the wrong way personality-wise. Anybody can identify with that? Amen, right? We all know them. Like, they, more than likely, they're in our family somewhere. And so there's some kind of disagreement that's going on. And Paul's saying here, um, Eudoia and, and Syntyche, or whatever your name is, I want you to make sure that you can resolve this. It's, it's of utter importance that you resolve this. Why? Because if we read in Acts 16, where Paul's going around in Acts 16 as a frontier missions guy to this city of Philippi, 
and he's telling people the gospel and they get saved, more than likely these two ladies are part of that core group and they have actually been laborers in the gospel in this city trying to take the gospel to, to the people in the city. And so these two people are Christians working together for the advancement of the gospel. And this isn't a theological disagreement. It's a personality disagreement. And he's saying, for the sake of the gospel, the advancement of it, you've got to learn to agree. And so we see that he says it in verse 3, I entreat you. I mean, I am begging you. I am, I am begging you. The word entreat is in Luke 15, whenever the father goes out to the older brother who's having a pout session because he's like, you know, you don't even give me a goat. And it says the older father entreats him to come into the party. Imagine the father pleading with the older brother. The younger brother's home. He's home. We should rejoice. And it says he entreats him to come in. So this is the language that Paul's using, talking to these two ladies. I entreat you, Judea and Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion. This true companion is the Greek word syzygos. And it can be taken as a proper name. So Paul, he's being punny here. He's, he's, he's talking to Syzygos, whose name also means true companion, or yoke fellow, who's saying, hey, Syzygos, live up to your name. Why don't you be the guy that goes over to the two quarrelsome women and help them agree in the Lord? So he says, I entreat you, Eudoia and Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I even ask you, true companion, or Syzygos, to help these women. And here it is. This is why it's important who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together. This is why it's important. They need to agree together for the sake of the advancement of the gospel. The gospel doesn't advance whenever we're having personality or having issues, whenever we're, we're getting at each other's throats, whenever we're supposed to be about mission. We're getting at each other's throats and not being about mission. And so Paul hears about this in the idea of community. He says, help these women who have labored side by side me with the, in the go- with the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And so he looks at them and he says, I want you to make sure um, that you are agreeing together in the Lord. So here's the first element of true um, community. Here's the first element right here from verses 2 and 3. Make every effort to repair and maintain Christ-like relationships with fellow believers. Notice those two words I used. Repair and maintain. You need to, if you already have a good relationship, maintain it. And if you don't have a good relationship, you need to work on repairing that relationship and then maintaining that relationship. This is an element or a mark of true Christian community. That for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the advancement of the gospel, we don't let personality things come in our way because that hinders gospel movement. Now, I'm not talking about theology again. Don't mistake me. There's true doctrinal things that we need to have discussions about, if you will. But personality things, Paul says these things are too trivial. These things are too unimportant for the sake of the gospel. Now, Syzygos um, is also being entreated where Paul is uh, asking him. So as we stop, to, as we kind of finish number one, let me just throw out there what I think is a good application for us. And I'm gonna, we're going to do a little role play here. In your group, and again, if you're not in a group, get in a group. Get in a community of believers whether it's at Remedy or wherever, make sure you're in a, a group of believers, a, a community, if you will, living out the advancement of the gospel. But in your advancement of the gospel, in your group that you're in, maybe you're Judea or Syntyche. Maybe you actually know of someone that you are having a kerfuffle with. That's a tiff or a, or a, a quarrel. There's someone in my group that I am having some kind of 
thing with. And this right now is keeping us from the advancement of the gospel. Are you Dia or are you um, Syntyche? If you're not, that's great. But perhaps you can play the role of Syzygus. You know the true companion, the true yoke fellow. You know in your group of um, Eudoia and Syntyche. And you're thinking, those two are really hindering the advancement of the gospel in this particular group. They don't get along. And they don't seem like they're ever going to get along. They need someone, a Syzygus, a true companion, to come inside who's objective, who's level-headed, who's not heated, doesn't have any, any thing into this discussion that can come along and say, listen, I want to help this. I don't want to hurt it. For the advancement of the gospel, let me come in here. We're called to that. I know that that scare, might scare you. You might think, no way. I'm kind of like the Seinfeld of all that. Y'all just work that out. Good luck with all that. I want to get out of there. Th- that's not what we're called to. If we're not Judea and Syntyche, but we are in a group where there's one, two of those people, you need to be the Syzygus. You need to come alongside and for the sake of the gospel, work to make every effort to repair and maintain, whether you're the two or the outside in the group, as, pa- as part of the group. It's just as much your responsibility as well to repair and maintain the Christ-like relationships that you have with fellow believers. Or, perhaps you're Paul. You don't live in that city, but you know that's going on. Maybe it's your family in another city, and all you can do is be the role of Paul. Appeal to these two, or the the, the level-headed mediator in that group, and just make the appeal. I can't be there, but I can't not do anything. Let your mind run around and think if there's anybody that you can be the Paul for, where you can make the appeals from afar, and that's all you can do to the two or the mediator and say, I need for you to, to resolve this for the sake of the gospel. This is a mark of true community. This is an element of true community that we make every effort to repair and maintain Christ-like relationships with fellow believers because the advancement of the gospel is at stake. Paul doesn't say, Get along just so that you can, you know, have a happy time whenever you're hanging out. He says that I want you to get along because you have labored together with me in the gospel, which means now you're not. And we need to labor together in the gospel. We only have 70 years, whatever. So let's use those years for the advancement of the gospel. So that's the first thing that we see here is that um, we need to maintain relationships. Now, the next thing that we're going to see in community, now this is a very familiar verse. I know that most of you have all heard this voice, verse before. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And I want you to consider that Paul's writing this not for you to do individualistically, which you should, but not just individualistically, but also in the context of community. How can I rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, in a group of people? Not just by myself in my quiet time or when I don't yell at anybody on the drive to work, but whatever. But like, when can I rejoice in the Lord always? And again, I say rejoice in a group of people. I think that's the context of this verse. Now we know the whole book of Philippians is about joy. Christ our joy. It's a reoccurring theme that Paul keeps introducing. So we know it's a big thing that he wants us to make sure that we're concentrating on. Not mere happiness, which fades away at any moment in any crisis that happens but everlasting, deep, abiding joy in Christ so that whenever a tragedy comes, we have peace that passes understanding because we have a deep, abiding joy in the person and work of Christ and what he's done for us and that we have right relationship with God. Though troubles may come. So he's saying this, 
Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Remember that Paul is saying this to a group of people, um, not just randomly. Paul's down in a 20-foot hole in a prison, exposed to the elements. He has no toilet. He just is in a hole that he's in prison in. And also, these particular people have already seen Paul have this happen to him before. If you remember in Acts chapter 16, Paul went to this city with some people, and he started preaching the gospel, and he converts the you know, the Miss Cleo lady, and then whenever he converts, the, the lady that can foretell the future, the, her two owners can't earn any money anymore, so they just go tell lies. These guys are just throwing the city into an uproar. And then what happens? They take Paul and Silas, they beat them, and they beat them with rods, they throw them into the jail, and there they are inside the jail with stocks around them, and they're beaten down inside prison. And if I was there, I would just be, God, what's up? <laughs> I mean, we're honest here, right? This, this, I think this is how you would be too. I'm working for you, Jesus. Why did I just get beat up with big rods and now I'm handcuffed to the ground and I'm freezing to death? But what was Paul's decision? Acts 16.25. What does it say? About midnight, they started singing hymns of praise to God. He's living out this verse. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say Rejoice. Paul's not writing this where the Philippians are like, where's Paul getting this from? They've seen it firsthand, and he's doing it again now in another prison. Rejoice in the Lord always. And then what happens after that? What happens after the the midnight um, worship service? Earthquake happens. And then after the earthquake, the jailer who remembers them in the midst of all that saying, they are singing hymns to Jesus right now. And then when the earthquake came, they could have gone, but they didn't. And then the jailer gets saved. This is what it means to rejoice in the Lord always. And so the, the Philippians, they're hearing this and they're saying, we understand what you're saying, Paul. We understand what you're saying about rejoicing in the context of community. You're rejoicing in the context of community in the, in the prison whenever you're singing hymns. But then I think this rejoicing in the context of community here in Ephesians is supposed to be done in, with a group of people because of the next verse. Look what it says. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, but don't let five like be separated because we like to take four and throw it up there and never forget five or never remember five. Look what this. After he tells us that to rejoice, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. So you're supposed to rejoice in the Lord always in such a way that your reasonableness, we're going to talk about that word, is made known to everyone. Your rejoicing is in the context of everyone being aware that I'm rejoicing in the Lord that in such a way that my reasonableness is being made known. And so as we're looking at this, an element here of community is this. Um, well, let me read this, this quote. If you have your English Standard, uh, English Standard Version study Bible, you're going to probably read it along with me. But this is what he says when we're looking at the word reasonableness. This word can be translated um, gentleness or moderation or gentle spirit. It doesn't mean uh, a person that's wimpy. It means someone that's reasonable. This is what it says. Reasonableness is crucial for maintaining community. This is it. It is the disposition that seeks what is best for everyone and not just for oneself. So even in your group of 12 to 15, do you have a group of 12 individuals? Or do you have a group of 12 people united who are rejoicing in the Lord always So that we are doing this as a community and our reasonableness is being made known. Which means, and here's our second one, the second element of community. That we seek what's best 
for the community at whole, at large, not ourselves. Which means your preference isn't always going to happen. What's best for the community? You know, um, it, it's a little bit, uh, it takes time to do this. You have to go out of your way to do this. And let me just kind of talk about remedy here for a second because we do a good job. And let me give an example. Whenever there's a crisis, just last Sunday we had this, uh, someone had a crisis with, with one of their children. Whenever there's been a fire in someone's home, whenever someone's had a baby, meals are taken to them, love and support has come around them. We're not thinking about what's best for me right now. What's best for me is that I don't have to go to the store and buy a bunch of stuff and take my time and make it and take it over to their house. And, I mean, but instead, my reasonless, or I'm going to not just do what's best for me, but what's best for my community, and we're all going to go around them, and we're going to love on them and support them and care for them and, and get around them and take care of them right now. We're doing a good job at this in, in a lot of cases, and I want to <laughs> commend you for that and say, keep doing it. But also, not just in the, in the context of meal-taking, in crisis situations, but in general, on and on and on in your group situations, how can you make sure that this is happening, that you're seeking what is best for the community, not just yourself? It takes work to do that. Selfish people will struggle with this one. Selfless people will not. But selfish people will do what's best for them in the context of group every single time. They will not give way. They always want their preference. But instead, we're called to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. Your gentleness, your moderation, your gentle spirit, your ability to let others, um, as it says, the disposition that seeks what's best for everyone, not just for themselves. It needs to be experienced by all. When it says to be made known to all, this literally means not just they're cognitively aware of it, but yet it means experienced. It's the same idea in, in Genesis 2 when it says Adam knew his wife. He didn't cognitively understand all things about her. He experienced her. Let it be experienced by all that you are literally going to live in a community that you don't do what's best for yourself, but what's best for the community. Now, um, I think that a way that we can apply this is this. As we rejoice in the Lord always by doing what's best for our community or our body or your community group or whatever group that you're doing life with as, uh, as Christians, um, what are the things that you need to do? What is best for the group, not just for yourself? I don't have like a, a punchline here, like, and you should therefore go over to our, our sign-in board and make sure you're doing this right here. I don't have that. I'm just saying, what is it that you're being very selfish with? that you're not, not letting go of your preference, where you're not willing to do what's best for the group. Um, I'm just putting it out there and saying, Holy Spirit, I'm trusting you to go do some work on that. And so I want you to do some honest assessment on yourself and say, I'm part of the group as long as it goes my way, or I'm part of the group no matter what. For the sake of the advancement of the gospel, that God's put me in this group of people I'm going to do life with, I'm part of this whether I get my way or not because this is what's best for us as a group move forward um and right after that after he says that if you'll notice in verse five it says let your reason must be known to everyone and then he says the lord is at hand now why does paul tag on the lord is at hand to this 
some commentators say it's to remind us of the second coming. And so, Jesus is about to come, so you better get busy, and you better be looking busy when he comes. And so you've got to be doing stuff. And so when he comes, if you're not doing stuff, I mean, he's going to be pretty ticked off at you. So you need to be letting your reasonableness be known. You need to be rejoicing in everything. I think that's partially an understanding of it, but I think there's more to it as well. I don't think it means just second coming, the Lord's about to come. But I also think it means right now, personally, as Christians, we've been promised the Holy Spirit. And so he's asking you to do something that seems so contrary to our total depravity. I'm supposed to seek what's best not for just myself. I'm supposed to give up my preferences, which is what sinfully I always want. Instead, I'm supposed to think about what's best for the community. I'm also supposed to think about repairing and maintaining all the relationships around me, which that's always awkward. But the Lord's at hand. The promised Holy Spirit is inside of you who's going to give you the power to do the things that he's asking you to do. So this isn't some scary, the Lord's come and look busy. Instead, I think it's a precious promise. The Lord's at hand right now, personally in your life, equipping you, loving you, and giving you far more power than you think you have to do these things that he's asking you to do. The Lord is at hand. So as we see that, um, we're moving into this next verse in verse 6. He tells us in the second one that we need to seek what's best for the community and not for ourselves. And now we go into verse 6, which is very familiar. And I I think that we all think about this individually. Every single one of us takes verse 6. Don't be anxious. I'm always anxious. This happens. This happens. I'm going to lose my job or I'm going to have to move or I really want that job or uh, whatever. Um, And so I'm anxious. And so I bottle it up. I don't even tell my spouse. I certainly don't tell my group. And I just pray, God, I'm anxious. Make it go away. I know you take care of the birds and you know you take care of things and the flowers. And certainly I'm more important than them. And I've got that Matthew verse memorized. But I'm anxious, God. And so instead of being anxious, all I'm going to do is I'm not going to do that. But everything, I'm just going to pray about it. And it's all me, individualistic, individualistic, individualistic. And I think instead, the context of verse 6 is community. We've seen it all throughout here, this thread, and I'm going to show you another thread, where I think this even anxiety verse is supposed to be done in the context of a community. Whenever those things happen, God has put another, some more people around you that you can actually, scary thought, tell them, <laughs> talk about this. I am anxious about. These things are happening in my life, and I am nervous about fill in the blank. And I need for you to come and, what does he tell him to do? Pray. Pretty amazing. Prayer actually changes things. And we're going to have the benefit, not just of ourselves saying, I'm anxious, Lord, make it happen. But instead, we tell people and we all get around together. And we all share those things and we all pray for those things. And so, multiple prayers are going up to the Lord, petitioning him and asking him, Lord, change these circumstances or make us happy in these circumstances or... Lord, we don't know what, what to do. Give us discernment. Fill us with the Spirit. Look what it says here in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. Everything. Not just sometimes, not just, I got this one. Whenever it's really bad, Lord, I'll ask you. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That your, by the way, that's a plural your. That's not a singular. Let your community be made known. Let each person know. And then verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding regard, plural your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I know Paul's writing to a group of people in Philippians, but I still think that the, the immediate context is a group of people, a community. So here's the third thing. 
a, a third element of community, true community, is this. As a community, living in light of the gospel together, living in the light of the fact that Jesus has come and died for you and given you new life in him, completely um, made you just and innocent and righteous and pure before him because of his work on the cross, his death on the cross. Living in light of that truth, don't be anxious about anything, but pray about everything together. Pray about everything together. Not just by yourself, but together. So let's, let's look at some of these ideas here. First, when do we pray? When do we pray? Psalm 55, 16, 17 says this. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening, morning, and at noon, I order my moans, and he hears my voice. This means all the time. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. Um, pray without ceasing. Another one in Psalm 55, 2. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he'll sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. When do we pray? Evening, morning, and noon. All, it doesn't mean like once in the evening. Like, it's not literally. It's meaning all the time. All the time. All the time we're to be coming. When are we to pray? All the time. Uh, I, I saw this quote recently, maybe a little bit longer than recently, from John Piper, and I'm going to rephrase a little bit. It's not exactly, but I want you to think about this. Every single one of us, including myself, are absolutely entrenched in social media. I know every one of y'all must have a Facebook or Twitter or on your, it's, it's right in our pockets. We can get to it right here at any moment. We are entrenched in the idea of being in community in, on side of a screen. And this is what Piper says in regard to prayer. This is what he says. This is hopefully something you've thought about at least. One thing social media will truly reveal in our lives is that our lack of prayer was not from a lack of time. Vody says, Vody Bauckham says, if you can't say amen, you got to say ouch. Social, I mean, think about how much time we spend doing that. It, we, we say I'm too busy to pray. You're not too, I'm not too busy to pray. No one is too busy to pray. So when are we to pray? All the time. And in this idea is that we are to be praying in the context of a community. When there's something going on, we don't just say, hey, I'm going to pray for you about that, but I'm not. I mean, I'm really, I'm just saying that because that sounds spiritual, and that's what Christians say, but I'm really not. You know, I got your email, hope it goes well. I'm going to write, write you back, hey, I'm going to pray for you about that. But instead, even if they're telling us face-to-face, I'm going to pray for you about that right now. We're in food line. Let's go. Let's do it right here. I mean, whatever. When we say we're going to pray for each other, unless you can't right then, why not do it right then? Or if you say you're going to do it later on, you do it. But what we're supposed to do and what we're called to do here is to pray about everything. Now, let's notice something about the anxiety piece. Because that's something we all experience. I think we all experience the anxiety. But notice this, what he says. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Look at this. With thanksgiving. Big question. How do I pray with thanksgiving in such a way that it directly affects my anxiety. I think Paul's given us an, a hint into this. Um, let, me, let me read to you a quote from John Calvin, and this is just brilliant. It's just brilliant. This is what he says. Gratitude, thanksgiving, the idea of praying with thanksgiving. Gratitude will have this effect upon us. If I pray with thanksgiving, this is the effect it has upon me. Gratitude will have this effect upon us, that the will of God will become the grand sum 
of my desires. The more I pray with thanksgiving, then the will of God becomes my grand desires. Here's something that's happening, and I'm anxious about it. I'm very anxious about it, but it seems to be the will of God. And so I want to be okay with it. So what God's saying is, the more that I pray with thanksgiving, the will of God, whether it be blessing or whether it be persecution, the more I pray with thanksgiving, the less that anxiety fades, the more that anxiety fades away, it lessens in my life. And I become, as he says, the will of God, which is making me anxious right now, it seems to be, I mean, all things that happen to us are the will of God, seem to become the grand desire of my heart. Be blessing or persecution, I see anxiety lessening in my life when I pray with thanksgiving. When I pray with thanksgiving. So that, with thanksgiving, is not just, oh, I know, with thanksgiving, I'll say that too. Paul is actually helping us see, I want the anxiety to go away. I, I, my, I'm worried about my daughter. She seems to be straying away from the Lord. I'm worried about my job. I don't know how I'm going to provide for my family. I'm worried about my f- college future. I'm worried about my future in marriage. I don't know that it's going to happen. Whatever. I mean, you can fill in what are your anxieties. I don't know. But what he's saying is, pray with gratitude. Pray with thanksgiving. And then you'll see your heart will start moving towards the will of the Lord. Be what it may. That's what I want. Anxiety lessens. Maybe not fully. But the Spirit will certainly help you with that. We become less and less anxious. And that's a great, great promise for us. And it says here in verse 7, And then the peace of God, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. As we pray with thanksgiving, I don't know why I'm not anxious about this. I should be anxious about this. It seems like such and such is about to happen, and most people get pretty nervous about that. But for some reason, perhaps you've talked like this as a Christian. I'm just not nervous about it anymore. I'm just not anxious. I've just given it to the Lord, and I've trusted him, and... Verse 7 is happening. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard. Commentators went crazy that Paul's writing in jail saying they're going to guard you. They went crazy, but whatever. He will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He will guard your... Have you talked like this before? Whenever you've said, I'm just going to pray with thanksgiving. I'm going to think about the things the Lord's doing. I'm going to submit myself wholly to the will of him. And I am anxious. And then all of a sudden the anxiety starts fading. And you see that that is a possibility that scares you to death. And you start saying in your own language this kind of thing. Verse 7. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding is guarding my heart and mind. I I don't understand. But I'm just not anxious about it anymore. It's a pretty big deal. (laughs) God is so good. He's doing something in my heart. Now here's the thing. I know I've said this kind of in an individualistic manner, but I want you to remember, as a community living in light of the gospel, don't be anxious about anything. Pray about everything together. The Lord wants you to do that with the group of people in your life. He structured it that you would be doing this with people. You share what's going on, they pray for you. They share what's going on with you, with them, you pray for them. He wants you to pray with people and for people. And then lastly, we see the last little mark of true community comes before us in verse 8. Finally, brothers, this is, I know, another very familiar text, and we've all probably thought about it by ourselves. I know what I need to do. I need to get me some flashcards by myself and create them, and I'll just look at them whenever I'm in the waiting room by myself or I'm waiting for the long lines at Walmart. I'm just going to think about what's true, think about what's honorable. But I think, again, this is in the context of community. When we're 
in a group of people, whenever we're with them, as a group, how can we think about what's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise? Think about these things. So here's, here's the fourth element of true community. It's just kind of verse 8 is that first half of the sentence. Verse 9 is the second half. Here it is. It's really straightforward. Think holy thoughts. Speak holy thoughts. Think holy thoughts. Speak holy thoughts. The think part comes from verse 8. My brothers, finally brothers, whatever is true. Now, um, one of the great pieces of information that's been given to me, uh, or advice, I should say, when it comes to preaching is, whenever you're preaching a sermon, don't preach a sermon in such a way and that anybody, whatever religion they're listening to, is going to agree with it. If you've done that, you haven't preached a Christian sermon. You've just given a motivational speech. And so um, I don't want to do that. I want to preach a Christian sermon so that if you're not a Christian, you're going to find yourself disagreeing. Um, and here's, unless you're becoming a Christian, and then you won't because the Lord's saving you. So verse 8, when it says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, I think the only true thing that we can say, the highest that fits all of this, is the gospel of Christ. There is nothing more true. There is nothing more honorable, just, pure, lovely. The fact that Jesus Christ, though we were depraved, and his sovereignty and his goodness came and lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we should have died, and then by faith, gives all of us, imputes all of that righteousness to us when we put faith in him, and then all of our sinfulness goes on to him, and the great exchange happens. And now, forevermore, we are saved to be with our Savior forever because of his death, burial, and resurrection. This is the greatest news there is, and I think that that is the context of when we're going to ask, what is it that I can talk about in verse 8 that fits these categories? The gospel of Christ. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever is pure, you've been declared pure now. Whatever is lovely, Christ has made you lovely because of, his, because of the gospel. Whatever is commendable, whatever is excellent, if anything's worthy of praise, Jesus Christ is worthy of praise. Now, we're to do this in the context of a community. So what does it look like for you in the context of a community whenever you're doing this? Um, think holy thoughts, speak holy thoughts. This next one, I think, is pretty important. Verse 9. God doesn't want you to just think holy thoughts, get into a group, and never say anything. He wants you to speak holy thoughts to your people that are in your group. Whenever I was in seminary, um, I decided, since intramural basketball was coming, that for the spring, I, w- I was in a community group, much like we have. They called them home groups there. I was in a home group, and intramural basketball s- was starting at seminary. You can just imagine that. You know, We missed a shot Oh, shucksy, you know, it's a seminary, so no one ever says anything wrong. Um, and so, <laughs> well, I take that back. But anyway, um, so I thought, you know what? I want to play basketball. I need some exercise. I want to do this. I, I, and it's just, uh, just I, 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 I. And so for about a period of eight or nine weeks, I went every Tuesday and Thursday night to play in intramural basketball. And so every Thursday night when we had community group, I didn't go. My wife went. But I didn't go, and where's Fudd? Oh, well, he's playing basketball, in a short little thing. But the thing about seminary, since it's like this big, is that you don't just see him on Sundays. You see him every day <laughs> at school, at class, in your neighborhood, and you don't go to a community group. It doesn't mean they don't see you. They see you all the time. Hey, Fudd, when you come to community group? When you come to when, well, home group? When you come to home group? When you come to home group? And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm just playing basketball right now. As soon as this is over, I'm going to come back. I'm gonna, it's, no, it's no big deal. And finally, this guy named Jeff, that was a student uh, there, but also working at the church. He comes to me, and he gives me 
pretty good rebuke. Pretty good rebuke. But at the end, it was like the best rebuke ever because all I wanted to do was hug him. You know, it was like, how'd you do that? Um, and so he, he gives me this rebuke and he says, listen, um, you're in seminary. We've got some guys that aren't in seminary in our group, you know, some, you know, smoking weed, that kind of stuff, really crazy stuff. And he goes, listen, I know you're in seminary and you feel like you got your stuff together. Um, and for all intents and purposes, you know what I mean? Like com- seminary guys are supposed to have their stuff together. And we certainly have issues. But he's saying, um, I know that you think you don't need to be a part of the group because you're walking with Jesus. You're in seminary class every day. You're coming to church, blah, blah, blah. And so you're coming as a consumer to this group and you feel like this group's for you. But the group's not primarily always set up that we come there and if things are bad, it's about us. When you come to community group, home group, it's also set up that the Lord is going to say something through you to them. And this is just, you know, obvious 101. But if you're not there, you're not going to say it. You're neglecting your ability to exhort the others in the group by not being there. And they're missing out on you saying, and I never thought, I don't have anything to say. You guys are brilliant. Y'all can say everything. That's not how God works, obviously. I mean, look at the Bible. Over and over and over, who does he use? The brilliant? The gifted? No. And so when we say, think holy thoughts, speak holy thoughts, we can't say, well, I know I'm supposed to speak holy thoughts with people, but they don't need me there. I'm not really gifted enough. I'm just going to go play intramural basketball for nine weeks. There's other people there. God, listen, God wants to use you, you right now, you, to speak into that life to those people there. You, individually, you are marked and set apart by God to share life with them so that you can make a difference in their life when you speak the gospel to them, when you encourage them, when you pray for them. It's not the work of someone else. And if you're shy, that's, that's just too bad. God wants to use you. I don't care that someone knows the Bible more than you. Look what he says in verse 9. This is why I know that. Speak holy thoughts. He says it in verse 9. Um, what you have learned and received and heard and seen. A lot of verbs there. What you've learned, received, heard, and seen. You've, I've seen this happen to you. Look what he says. Practice these things. The you he's talking about is not just the, the ones that have got it all together. You practice it. Every single one of y'all, you've learned it, you've received it, you've heard it, and you've seen it. Every single one of you are under the responsibility then to go, in verse 8, think these holy thoughts. As a group, get together and let's say, what is the gospel doing in our life? But also, speak holy thoughts. Let's talk about the gospel. And there is someone that you have um, been set apart by God to encourage, to pray for, and to speak words of encouragement or receive words of encouragement from. You individually. God deeply cares that you're there in the life of people. And I just don't mean, I don't mean a a weekly meeting. I mean they're doing life with a group of people wherever you're going. Hey, I'm going to the store. Let's go. Hey, I'm going to the mall. Let's go. Hey, I'm going to take the trash to the dump. Let's go. He wants you to invite people into your life to go do the things that you do every day. Make space. And then when you're doing that, you're thinking holy thoughts, talking about the gospel, meditating on it. When it says meditate here, um, 
Finally, brothers, whoever is true, think about these things. In verse 8, this, this think, this is legozomai, which means to meditate longingly and deeply in such a way that when I think about it, I'm not just cognitively understanding, but I'm meditating longingly and deepingly in such a way that as I start to understand it, it's going to have effects that come back to me that change the way I think, change the way I walk, change the way I live. That's what he's saying. Think about these things. It's not just get it understood. It's meditate longingly and deeply in such a way that as you start understanding it, it is absolutely going to affect the way you live. Think these holy thoughts and speak them. I want to read you a D.A. Carson quote. This is, man, this is so good. I know it's possible for people to gain a sort of mechanical knowledge of Scripture that is not characterized by repentance and faith and that therefore remains spiritually fruitless. In other words, you can just know, it's possible for people to know a lot of stuff about God but not be changed. But for, but for most of us, that is not our current danger. Our current danger is that we make very little effort to think God's thoughts after him, to hide his word in our heart that we might not sin against him. We don't, Psalm 119, 13, store up the word of God in our heart that we might not sin against him. Just try to learn some information, maybe. And maybe we can get that down. But we're not. Think about verse 8, what it's actually asking you to do. Think about really what it's asking you to do. Whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy, think about these things. Meditate longingly in all these particular things about the gospel so that when you start understanding them, it has a profound change in the way that you live your life. And then, when you start having that happen in your life, whatever you've seen and had and happened and you've noticed, start doing these things, put into practice these things in your life in the context of a community. So as we're going to our conclusion, I just have one question. One question for you. If you're not in a community at all, whether it's a, commun- a formal community group at Remedy or a group of five to ten people that are Christians, the question doesn't apply to you. Just, you've got to get in one. You've got to be doing life with Christians. Making disciples. That means those people that are Christians growing and then reaching out to your neighbors in the city and unbelievers becoming Christians. You've got to get into a group where you're doing that. You're not supposed to live a walled-off life. But here's the one question. Let's say that you are in one. Where in that group are some of these four things that are supposed to be happening not happening? Perhaps you are the Yodia Syntyche. And you know that the advancement of the gospel is not happening in your particular group because there's a sharp disagreement. Or perhaps you're Syzygos that can come along and make that happen so that the advancement of the gospel can happen. Perhaps that's what's going on in your group. And you're not making disciples because you haven't addressed that. Change it. Make it happen. The second one is perhaps you have a group of 12 individuals, but no one actually operates on what's best for the community. Remember Ephesians 2, 1 through 5? Read that. And then let's start asking, what's best for the community as a whole? Because of what Christ has done for us based on the gospel, what's best for the community, not me? Or perhaps um, you're just a group that doesn't ever pray together. You believe these things. You think prayer is a good idea and awesome, but you just never do it. And we're supposed to pray together. 
and tell about what's going things in our life. Or perhaps lastly, you just don't meditate longingly on, on the gospel together. And you certainly don't put into practice these things. Think about your group. Your college group, your whatever. The people you're doing life with. Where are y'all lacking? And as we go into this time of response, maybe say, Lord, I don't want these things to happen in my life. Make these things better. Make these things change by the power of your spirit. The Lord is at hand. I know that. Come now, Lord, and let's not just be, as I said in the very beginning, hearers of the word, but doers also. Lord, let's make disciples of these nations, of this city. And then, after you've thought about that, let's stand in this response time and just give Christ the glory for what he's done for us in our lives. I'm going to pray, and then Ben will lead us in a time of worship. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. I pray that now you would come and that you would do your work, Spirit, in our lives. The places that we we know that you've spoken to us this morning, but we just, either out of pride or fear or complacency, we just don't want to get over. We're lethargic. We are lazy. We're fearful. We're scared. Maybe we just don't care. Maybe we care deeply and have no idea the next step and need somebody to come help us. Whatever, Lord. Holy Spirit, you're, you're communicating to us and maybe we need to go confess that. Maybe we need to go ask somebody to help us. Maybe we just need to talk to you and say, Lord, make these things happen in my life. I pray that this week would be a marked change in our lives when it comes to community. A marked change. And as we think among these things, Lord, would you also... Fill us with the Spirit, anew and afresh, and let us stand and give you the praise and worship that you are due and that you're worthy of. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.